0: So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning where prayerfully we will finish out the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. As you guys arrive there in 1 Corinthians, you will probably recall that last week we talked about the planting of this church of Corinth was really came about in Acts chapter 18. So we saw there is the Apostle Paul planting this church in an interesting area. The area of Corinth, the city of Corinth, was located on a very popular trade route. It was what is known as an isthmus. It's at the southern end of Greece, and it had the Aegean Sea on the west and the Ionian Sea on the east. And so what it meant for the town of Corinth is, as ships would not want to sail the treacherous route around the southern tip of Greece, they would arrive there in Corinth, They would literally dock and then lift the ships up and carry them the one mile uh, through across this isthmus over to the Ionian Sea on the opposite side and vice versa. And so as a result, Corinth began to be known for its trade, for merchants to be there, for sailors to be there. It was a very popular area, an area where trade and culture all blended together. It was also an area where an incredible amount of uh, immorality blended because, as you can imagine, as uh, hundreds or thousands of sailors descended upon this area and then they had time to kill, uh, while the cats away, the mice will play. And so what we see is Corinth was really like the uh, Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. I mean, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. They, They had all kinds of things taking place there. This lack of morality really is what defined them as a culture. And so it's here that the Apostle Paul planted a church. And we might scratch our heads and wonder, like, why would God have him plant a church there? But what we referred to was in Romans chapter 5, what Paul wrote there was where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And that's really the word that defines this Corinthian church. They were a graceful people. They were a, a, a gifted group of people. They had all these things going on. They had finances. They had the ability to speak. But what they lacked was maturity they struggled in the area of maturity. What maturity looks like in the Christian life is is love. They struggled to truly love one another. And so as Paul is receiving letters now from the church in Corinth, from members inside the church, they're telling him of all kinds of things happening. I mean, there's a guy who is sleeping with his stepmom. Yeah, not great. Uh, there are people getting uh, drunk at the uh, communion time, the, the the Lord's Supper, they would partake. They were getting drunk on the communion wide, like fall down, embarrassingly drunk. There were people cutting in front of line, in, in one, you know, with one another at the meal times, and so all these things happening where it was clear they weren't loving one another. And so Paul writes this letter to address correction through the first eleven chapters of their behavior, to correct them for what they had really gone down path with. To show, look, this is not the way that we should live as Christians. Now in chapters 12 through 16, he will then change the narrative and he'll address them from a constructive standpoint. I've addressed you from a corrective lens. Now I'm going to give you some constructive feedback. I'm going to give you things you can really consider and really hone in on. But with all this taking place at the church in Corinth and all these things happening, uh, we're going to turn to verse 10 is where we're going to pick up in our study and see where the apostle Paul starts and what he decides to address right off the bat. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you that my, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And so what's the first place that the apostle Paul decides to address? It's not the dude sleeping with his stepmom. It's not them getting fall down drunk at the communion dinners. But instead, he first goes to division, divisiveness. And what Paul is going to address, and the reason he starts here is, and many of you that have been involved in church know this to be true, that there's nothing that destroys a body quicker than divisive people, than divisiveness, those that just are determined not to get along or to subvert The the body as it goes. And so, what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 10 is this reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self condemned. And so, the reality is, uh, we can give all kinds of grace for people, we can give grace for folks working through situations in their life, uh, gross sins, lots of times. We can give plenty of grace. But what the Lord is commanding us to do is beware, in fact, deal with swiftly and quickly divisive people because it, it obliterates the church from the inside out. And so Paul starts in this very place. He says in verse 12, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And so they've become divided over the topic of Who's their favorite Bible teacher? I mean, of all things for them to be divided about. And there's this group that's saying, look, I'm of Paul. He's the, the founder of our church. He's so knowledgeable in the way he presents the word. So I'm of Paul. And yet there are others that are going, you know, we love Apollos. He was a great speaker, fluent orator in Greek. And so we're, we're of Apollos. We're going to be in that camp. And then there were the third group that said, we're of Cephas, that's uh, Peter's given name. And so Peter no doubt came and taught, and they're like, he's a man's man. He says it like it is. We like the Apostle Peter. And then there's the most dangerous group of all in the church, those that go, we're just of Jesus. We don't like anybody in particular, but those are the people that will cut you off at the stinking knees because they don't have an allegiance to anybody. They are looking to just eviscerate whoever comes along their path. And so each of these groups had split up. They'd formed factions over who they'd like the best. And here's what I want to mention. It's okay to have groups in the church of people who have common interests, who like things that each other likes. What I mean by that is there's likely a group of you, let's say, that enjoy knitting, right? So you like to get together and you knit. You're most likely not going to invite me to your knitting club because I don't like to knit. I don't know the first thing about knitting. What I like is the upcoming NFL draft. I'm mostly concerned about, are the Colts going to trade their number four pick to number one? Can we finally get a quarterback that won't get hurt and retire early? Like, this is my concern. So we're likely not going to see things the same way because you're concerned about knitting. And unless you're going to knit me a Colts Afghan, we're probably not going to be on the same page. But it doesn't mean that I don't love you. It just means we don't have common interests. And so as these groups come together, the real issue is that of uh, division because they had began to plant a flag in these things that they thought they believed in so adamantly, which Paul says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so he's saying, look, is Christ divided? And the answer is, no, he's not divided. And the reality is when the body suffers, when the body is divided, when people come up with these dogmatic stances and things and they plant flags and things, who ultimately suffers is Jesus. He's the one who bleeds. When we can't get along because we have some division down a denominational line because we think we do something better than you do, therefore you're likely going to hell, but we'll smile at you in a Walmart. Like, there's, there's hurt that happens in the body of Christ. He's the one that ultimately suffers. And so, one thing to consider as we talk about what do we plant our flag in as Christians. Where should I take a hardline stance versus just an opinion, just my vantage point inside the body of Christ, which I'm welcome to have. And here's a few things to consider that I'll just roll out there to you. Um, Did Jesus teach it? Did Jesus do it in His life on earth? And do we see the apostles and the early church continue in it? And if those are the lenses that you look through, if that's the filter that you run, what do I plant my flag in, you're going to find there are very few things that we have to be so divided that we just cannot fellowship with one another. There's not that many things that apply to all three of these areas, and the ones that do, uh, we have to plant our flag in. These are major items. And so, Paul continues, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And so the next area that they become divided was who baptized who. This idea of, well, I was baptized by Paul, or I was baptized by Apollos. And what Paul says is, I can't remember who I baptized. He go, tries to go down through the list, and I think this is funny. As Paul's writing, he says, I know I baptized Crispus and Gaius, and then he gets to verse 16, he's like, oh yeah, there was that whole household of Stephanas. I better write that down too. But he's like, other than that, I can't remember who I baptized or who I didn't. And it's it's fascinating because here we are on a Sunday where we're going to baptize people, and we're talking about baptism. Thank you, Lord, for bringing that up because uh, the idea can be brought about that Paul's somehow diminishing baptism. And the reality is he's not at all diminishing baptism. It's a beautiful picture of, of us falling after Christ. And you can run baptism through this same grid we just ran through. Did Jesus uh, teach on it? Yes. Did Jesus do it? Yes, He did. Did the apostles apostles in the early church continue it? Yes. So it checks all the boxes. But here's the issue. He addresses it in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What Paul says is, I didn't come to you to baptize. It's a wonderful honor to get to baptize you, but I came to present the gospel. The gospel that says that Jesus gave his life for my sins. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's his grace. And when you begin to layer in baptism as a piece of salvation, guess what also goes along with that? My works. Now I've interjected what I can do. To be a follower of Christ. That's the danger zone. Our works begin to get layered into this. And so, what we see is baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. It's declaring to people the decision you've made, the following of Jesus. He's given you the faith, you've exercised the faith, and it's by that grace you've been given that you are actually saved. You're justified at that moment for all of eternity. But baptism is not for salvation, it's a proclamation. It's a declaration of what Jesus has done for me, and I want to show everybody. And so this is what Paul is saying. Don't make the cross of no effect. Verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you've ever tried to share the message of the cross with someone who is perishing, uh, they will often reject you and call you a complete and total fool. You're a madman. You're insane. Why would the God of the universe pour Himself into flesh only to give His life for us? That didn't didn't compute to these Greeks specifically who made their gods and goddesses just like them. They were selfish. Here's the God of the universe giving of Himself. And so to those who are perishing, it was foolishness, but in verse 18, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's everything to those who are being saved. As soon as we accept Him, As our Savior, uh, positionally we are uh, justified. That means we're seated at the right hand of the Father. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. This is the position we get to take with the belief in our heart and the confession of our tongue. It's, It's a beautiful promise. There's no work for us to do that. He's freely given us this gift. It frees us from the penalty of sin. But to go beyond that, what we know about our lives is while we have been freed from the penalty of sin, we're all still working out the salvation with fear and trembling. Like daily, it's a battle. Daily, it's a taking up our cross. Daily, it's a being sanctified. This is the be ye being cleansed that First John talks about. So we're being cleansed. We're being saved from the power of sin. Sin's got a power on us, but through the cross of Christ, we're able to overcome, but this overcoming is a daily process. It's an endurance test. But what we also know is beyond that, that 1 John chapter 3 says that when He comes back in glory, and we see Him as He is, we are going to be as He is. We are going to be the promises glorified. That means He's going to free us from the presence of sin. So we've been freed from the penalty of sin. He's given us the ability to overcome the power of sin, but then when He returns, He's going to take sin away altogether. The presence of sin is going to be gone as far as the east is from the west. No more sin. What a beautiful promise. Verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the age? Has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so in this Greek, Greco-Roman culture, there were all these philosophers. I mean, the Greeks loved philosophy. In fact, the word philosophy comes from a sophia, which is the word in Greek for wisdom. And one of the four Greek words for love is phileo. Phileo, sophia, philosophy, they literally loved wisdom. They love to sit around and debate and talk about things ad nauseum. And so here's all these people throughout history, these great philosophers, these great minds, these great thinkers, these scientists. But you know what they all have in common? They all die. <laughs> Every one of them. They're all dead or they're dying. It's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what your tax return says. You're going to die. Aren't you glad you guys came this morning? I mean, this is this is what all these who are so intelligent, all these great philosophers all had in common. And yet, in spite of their supposed wisdom, what we see is God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. That when we turn on the CNNs and the Foxes and we hear all this wisdom that the world wants to impart, I don't know about you, but it's so upsetting. It's unsettling. It feels like things are coming apart at the seams. But the promise here is, God can even use that. If he can use Nebuchadnezzar to make his will be done, he can even use these things that are happening by these supposed wise people for his glory. Verse 21 says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. You see, the struggle that the world has is one with hope. If you look around, if you uh, spend any time in our community, you'll see that there is one very common thread on top of all of us uh, dying. (laughs) We are all struggling with hope. There are people out there that just have nothing. They are hopeless. And yet that's precisely what the message of the cross is all about. It's all about hope. Because of what Christ did, His resurrection, the promise is, He has paid the price for my sin. I don't have to be bogged down by it any longer. And so this preaching to those who are perishing seems like foolishness, but the question really is one that I think George Thurgood probably put it the best from the 1980s. It's a matter of who do you love, right? Who do you love? That's the real issue. It's These Greeks, they loved philosophy. But for those who love Christ, those who put their life into him, it's not foolishness anymore. All of man's ideas, all of his philosophies, it will not stand. But what verse twenty one says is this message is preached to save those who believe. Now, there are many that claim that they believe, but the truth is our actions imply what we actually believe. <laughs> that we claim we believe this message of the cross, but our actions will often say something completely different. Our actions imply what where our belief actually stands. And so that's the question that's being posed. Where do your actions actually show your beliefs exist? Verse 22, For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, for the Jews, they were always seeking after a sign. And you can't really blame them. If you look throughout your Old Testament, throughout history, I mean, the very uh, coming about of their people started with a sign. You had a 100-year-old guy and a 90-year-old woman having a baby. That's a big time sign. The reason they're all here is because these two had a child at an age where they shouldn't have had children. So it's a pretty miraculous sign. And then they find their way to Egypt through a sign and they make their way out of Egypt as a people through a series of signs and then eventually they cross the Red Sea, an amazing sign, and they get the word of God, the law of Moses given to them on Mount Sinai, an amazing sign. They even get bread from heaven. They didn't know what to call it. They said, it's manna. That. The word in Hebrew means, what is it? They didn't know what it was. It was bread from heaven. They had all these signs given to them. Yet, as the Messiah comes, and He gives them signs. All kinds of signs. He's healing people. He's driving out demons. He's wadding up spitballs and putting it in guys' eyes and they're able to see. I mean, there's all these signs that are taking place, pointing to him as the Messiah, the one that had been prophesied about from the time of Moses. Actually, from Genesis chapter 3, he was the seed that was spoken of there. And what do they ask? But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is approached, and then some scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. All he'd been doing was giving him signs. And what they asked for was another sign. And that's the danger for us when we pray for signs. We ask for, Lord, uh, show me a sign. It's a sign never actually saved anybody. It's a heart change. It's a heart condition that changes us from the inside out. And so these people had no heart change. They said, Teacher, we want to see a sign. But He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign would be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They demanded a sign. Jesus said, I'm going to give you one final sign. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. I'm going to give up my life. be three days and three nights. But just as as Jonah was ejected from the belly of the creek fish, I'm going to be ejected from the earth. This is the sign you're going to get. And yet they missed it. They missed the sign. This sign was even spoke about throughout their scripture that the Messiah was going to suffer. That he was, yes, going to make his enemies his footstool. They liked that part. But they didn't like the suffering Servant that He was also going to be. So they ignored texts like Isaiah 53 that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Or Psalm 22 written a 1,000 years before He stepped foot on the earth that proclaimed His death on the cross. They wanted to ignore the signs because they didn't fit the narrative that they had depicted for themselves about who the Messiah would be. And so they rejected Him. He even predicted this in Matthew 21. He says, Matthew twenty one verse forty two. Jesus said to them, "Have you never read the scriptures?" Which I always found uh, funny that Jesus was uh, sarcastic. Now it was sanctified sarcasm, but still sarcastic because the Pharisees' very job was to read, and he says, "Have you never read?" Like maybe you guys missed this part. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, and on whomever it falls, it will grind him into powder. Jesus said, you've rejected the chief cornerstone. Peter would pick up on this very quotation from Psalm 118 when he gave messages as well. But to the Jews, the Messiah had become a stumbling stone. They rejected the cornerstone that was him, Here he was right before him. Now, not to let the Greeks off the hook as we speak to them as well because the Greeks were always after wisdom. They were always looking for where wisdom could be found and they would sit together and talk about all these philosophies. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul went to Mars Hill there in Athens where the great philosophers would meet and he gave them this dynamic message there at the Oropagus, that Mars Hill. And he gave them such a message that Bible teachers all over the world say this is, you know, hermeneutically and homiletically, whatever those words mean, just means preaching and teaching. These words, uh, these, this teaching was one of the greatest ever recorded in the Bible. And Paul gave him a message. I mean, he took their Greek culture and their gods and their wisdom and he sewed it all together with this beautiful story about the cross and then in Acts chapter 17, verse 32, as he was headed down the home stretch, he was presenting this whopper of a message. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. And while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Here's the Apostle Paul, given one of the greatest messages ever recorded. And what happened is they mocked him. And the rest said, we're going to have to hear from you again. They put off the decision for another day. None of them were saved that day, you see. Paul left from there, and the very next place he went was Corinth, where we pick back up in our story, and in verse 23, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. Paul says, you know what? I'm done with trying to layer in your Greek culture and layer in all your wisdom and come to you with this incredible message, I am going to preach Christ and Him crucified. The resurrection of the dead. And there there is no greater sign than that. In fact, there's no greater sign than Paul standing there in front of these people, both made up of Jews and Greeks. I mean, here's a man whose very life speaks of resurrection. A guy who had more education than most of them there. He was educated in a a Greek-speaking household, fluent in Greek, as a writer and as an orator, he was also trained under Gamaliel, the top guy in Hebrew education. And so he's coming to them in a spot to say, look, I was zealous. I persecuted the church. I I was one who drugged people out of their homes and had them put to death for this belief. And yet, the resurrection happened. The risen Christ met him on the road to Damascus. It changed everything. The same thing happens in our lives when we meet the risen Christ that it baffles the mind. There's no greater sign, there's no philosophy that can tie all that together other than to say this is what transformation looks like. Here's Paul standing right there in front of him as a transformed life. We're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. Verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What he says is look in your midst. God isn't calling many wise, many noble, many mighty. Now, did that mean in their congregation that there were not many smart people? No. Did that mean that there weren't those that had a noble title? No. What it meant is they didn't see themselves that way. This is where blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who look at themselves in the mirror and see rightly and say, without Christ, I am nothing. He has built me up. It's in Him that I have life. And so Paul can say, Where are the, uh, where are the wise or the, the noble? There's not many around us except those who are called. Who's the one doing the calling? That's Jesus. He's the one that looks at us and says, Okay, you've reduced yourself down. Now I'm going to raise you up. Verse 27 But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. What God is saying is, I want your weak. I want those who have been called fools. I want those who have uh, seemingly have no value for society and then I'm going to make my name known in them. This is what God can do with the people. He doesn't need those that think they're mighty and think they're all that. What he's saying is give me those that are broken down, the poor in spirit, and see what I can do. Now why would God choose to do that? Why would he take not many mighty and not many noble? I'm so glad you asked. Verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. The reason he takes the foolish, the reason he let's us bottom out with our self righteousness is because we cannot take glory in it all the glory all the honor all the praise is him what he knows is if we begin to pat ourselves on the back and think we're pretty good oh yeah he's a pretty good speaker you oh, know he went to such and such a seminary look how good he is but instead he takes a guy who has no training and he says i'm going to put that fool on a swivel stool right And then, nobody can doubt, it's the glory of God. There's no reason for these things to work out, except God be glorified. Now, why would he do this? Because he's an egomaniac? Because he needs a pat on the back? No, God doesn't need us to pat him on the back. It's first and foremost for our protection. Any of you that have been in a relationship with anyone else know there's a chance you're going to be let down. In fact, it's almost certain at some point in time they are not going to do what they were supposed to do for you. And that's heartbreaking. It's so destructive. And yet what the Lord knows is don't put your trust in another human who is likely to fail. No matter how righteous they seemingly are or are not. But put all your trust solely on him who what we read at the end of Hebrews was he will never leave us nor forsake us. His promise is not to let us down. Never, not ever will he let us down. And so we see this promise because the reality is Romans chapter 3.23 says, all have sinned. And all there in the Greek means all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person we come into contact with has flaws in their game. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short. But it is by his power through our struggles, that we can actually give Him glory. This is the beauty of being vulnerable with one another. To come alongside and go, yep, absolutely, I've struggled here. I've had issues there. I understand exactly what you're walking through, brother. I know how you feel, sister. And so we come alongside each other and guess who gets the glory? Not you. It's all about Him. We get a glory in Him. Verse 30, But of Him i read the right i did read the right verse but of him you are in christ jesus who became for us wisdom from god and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written he who glories let him glory in the lord where does wisdom come from it comes from jesus but here's what this text says it doesn't just come from him it actually is him he is the personification of wisdom. When we desire to seek wisdom, He's the one we're seeking after. Proverbs chapter 8 is known in the Old Testament as, as a great chapter on wisdom. It's actually wisdom being personified, it's speaking of the coming Messiah. So in verse 22, the language takes a shift as the words are speaking about wisdom. And then in verse 22, it says, And the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. Before His works of old, I have been established from everlasting. From the beginning, there before there was an earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet He has not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when He prepared the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He established the clouds above, when He strengthened the fountains of the deep, when He assigned the sea and its limits so that the waters would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside Him as a master craftsman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and my delight, read this, my delight was with the sons of men. All that speaking of the Christ, there with God before the foundation of the earth, he is the personification of wisdom and did you catch it what his delight was his delight was with the sons of men he was so delighted to give his life for us beautiful promise of wisdom and so what we find is he is our wisdom personified he delights in us he is so excited to have you as a part of his family and as a promise he promises to give us his righteousness Isaiah 61.10 says that He will give us a robe of righteousness. All we have to offer are rags. That's our best day, that we can offer our righteousness. And His promise is to give us a robe of righteousness. In Him is all sanctification, setting apart. This is what He desires to do in our life, to set us apart not only as the bride like we talked about last week, but also as an instrument to be used in ministry. Each of you has a gift. He's going to set you apart to be able to do something great for Him. He's got something in mind for us. And then finally, He is our redemption. To be redeemed. This means to be purchased back. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. Speaking of God, He says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous... And is a jealous God. A description of God is he is jealous. That is his name we're told in Exodus. Now to some of us who might wonder like what is God saying? He's jealous. But to be jealous is to want something back that was previously yours. That's exactly how he feels about you. That's the story of redemption. He desires so much to have you back. You were his. At some point in time you walked away. At some point in time, you, you turned your back. Our very nature is that that we're, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to do it on our own, but we find ourselves in a spot where we can't. And what God says is, I'm going to meet you right there. Where you're at, that's where I'm going to meet you. I've been jealous for you. I've looked forward to this day with you. I'm so excited to pay the price to buy you back. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your word, we thank you for being our righteousness. We thank you for being our sanctification. Lord, above all, I thank you for being our redemption. I thank you for paying the price to purchase us back. I thank you, Lord, that we get an opportunity to remember as we're going to take communion in a few minutes, the price you paid, the desire you have in your heart to have communion with us. To look upon us with the light. To spend that time with us, Lord. It's it's mind-blowing. To the Greeks, they thought this is foolish. But man, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. We thank you for your mighty power, a power to save. Father, we just want to worship you today. It's all about you. In Jesus' name. Amen.